0: Welcome to a special edition of Tiger's SRD on the Tiger Minor Report Network and the Overtime Media Network. I'm our Castillo. inside me is Chris Brown. Find us iTunes, Spotify, iHeartMedia, Stitcher, and Google Play. And you can follow us on Twitter at Tiger's ML Report and the Facebook page, Tiger Minor Report. And also, if you have not a chance, check out Carfax, which is our uh, player breakdowns that we just started at. But you know that all aside, tonight we have a very special guest with us. The secret writer at Fangrass and the author of the Cooperstown Casebook, Jay Jaffe, am I saying that correctly? Right? Just I always want to make sure.
1: You got okay. You got it. You're fine. <laughs> Thanks.
0: <laughs> no problem. And he's he's he, he's the creator of the Jaws, and he's done a lot of stuff for in terms of Hall of Fame analysts and met, metrics. And his resume is long and prosper, prosperous, if you will. Jay, welcome to the show. And um, before we go any further, Chris, want to go ahead and ask our first time guest the question we always do.
2: Hey Jay, thanks for joining us. Uh, you know, I've uh, you're quite a prolific writer. Uh, you're doing all this stuff with fan, fan right now. The uh, what is it, replacement level killers or whatever?
0: Yeah, that's a good series. Um, yeah, and all
2: the the you know the the most uh, comprehensive Hall of Fame stuff I, I've about ever seen. But I don't know if I've ever read anything uh, like personal from you. So I'm kind of curious what your earliest baseball memory is. Huh.
1: You know, that's a good question. Um, the first, by uh, I remember a whole lot about the 1978 season. Um, I was, you know, I learned how to read a box score that summer. I learned how to follow the standings. Um, But obviously, you know, for being uh, the little know-it-all that I became that summer, uh, I had to be coming from somewhere and I can't entirely trace back how far it goes, but I want to say, you know, that that I do have vague general memories of the 1977 world series. Uh, I had some, uh exposure to baseball you know in probably 76 77 before that um i remember um i I figured this out a couple a a, a couple months ago that the the, uh kellogg's jim lomborg 3d card which came out in 1977 was probably my first baseball card uh because i I, you know i had that in my collection and it was like you know it came in a box of cereal and i think that was I, was, I liked it so much. I think that was how, how my mom figured out that she should, should buy me a, backup, a pack of baseball cards at the grocery store, uh, which turned out to be the top 78 set. So um, so I want to say it's probably sometime in 77, but there's no no real um, defining memory of it uh, that that sticks out other than I do uh, know that uh, my dad was rooting for the Dodgers in the World Series, and, and therefore I became a Dodger fan. And it turns out we we're was a third generation Dodger fan. Uh, cause my grandfather was a Dodger, was a Dodger fan and was actually born in Brooklyn.
2: Oh, wow.
0: That's awesome.
2: Yeah. I don't know. I, I would have pegged you. I, yeah, I, I was, you sort of born and raised in New York or. No, I, I was,
1: uh, I was actually born in Seattle and, uh, raised in oh. Salt Lake city. So I grew up watching minor league baseball.
2: So um, uh, yeah, a,
1: a, a fair bit recently, um, uh, in, on the subject of, uh, of, uh, minor league contraction, um, mm. Back, I think probably around May, uh, if you want to look for that. But uh, um, I grew up a Dodger fan, but uh, moved to New York in 1995, and uh, by '98 I was uh, part of a Yankees season ticket package that uh, uh, that I'm still part of here. Um, obviously, this year kind of a dud, <laughs> but uh, um, so I, I I've I've written about the duality of uh, of, of fandom uh, a lot when I was at, at Futility Infield, Infielder, the, the blog that I started in 2001. Um, but, uh, uh, I, I just passed 25 years in New York. Uh, in fact, I was celebrating 25 years in New York on February 28th, which was like the last night of normalcy in New York. Uh, the next oh, day we started shopping for supplies just in case, uh, uh, in case things shut down. And, uh, uh, I think the last time I took the subway, uh, for five months was, was, uh, was that Sunday, March 1st. So, uh, it was a, a very strange, uh, uh, set of events.
2: Yeah, you know, I, I've uh, thought about, you know, it's it's been strange here, here in suburban Detroit, but I can't imagine how strange it is to be in a big city like New York, especially New York, where where it was hit so hard, and the way of life has just changed uh, so much. But I don't know. I, I think we've all gotten used to it at this point. I, I maybe not. Maybe we'll never get totally used to it. But there's kind of a routine now. It seems
1: yeah figure out how to, yeah, I think I don't think getting used to it so much as figuring out how to operate within the constraints. Um, you know, we've got a, ch- a young child at home. Her preschool was interrupted. Uh, my wife and I already were working from home. Um, we've had to figure out how to juggle her, you know responsibilities watching watching her and 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 still staying productive. We're both in baseball media. She edits uh, for the athletic and and it's uh, uh, you know an ongoing challenge to to give her the attention she she deserves. and uh, um, you know at the same time stay on top of our work and uh um you know it's gotten easier here uh in that um you know the uh, the uh we we flattened the curve well enough that uh um there's actually some you know uh you know, things things came back starting in june and and uh uh, you know, we. I only do a little bit of outdoor dining here and there, but uh, only done it co- Subway a couple times. But um, I was able. We were able to send our our kid to a day camp um, uh, oh, nice. for a few weeks uh, last, last uh, this earlier this month, and that was really great to get her out of the house and socializing again. And uh, um, you know, so we're hopeful that uh, that that she'll be able to go to school in the fall.
2: Yeah, that's nice. Yeah, my son is six, and so he was uh, he he missed the second half of his kindergarten. But uh, it doesn't like I I don't feel too bad about that. He's young enough that I don't know if he's going to remember all that much. And and I feel like he could probably catch up on anything he missed. I feel more bad for like the third graders and fourth graders. But uh, I don't know. I'm sure there's a lot of people struggling out there. But I don't know. We don't want to we don't want to wax poetic about uh, COVID and struggling and stuff. We wanted to talk about uh, baseball because it's actually going on now.
0: You're talking, so, the, uh, you're talking about the you're talking about the cornflake series, by the way. My first one that I got from the that box set, where the box was going on, was uh, Steve Carlton. That was 1991, and I remember okay. my brother, my brother and I were fighting over it because it we, we don't really like traditionally. What we did was we took the cornflakes, we put them out, and then we would throw out the cornflakes just to get the baseball card. And uh, when my mom found out about it, she was we she did buy cornflakes for a while. She just sucked to something else, but. It was uh, Steve Carlton was part of that series. And then I ended up getting, I think my brother and I argued about also uh, Harmon Killebrew and, you know, because we had we, we had cards here and there. But that, that Cornflake series, that was one of the first ones we had. And the debate continues on. My brother will uh, occasionally will get a card. He'll get a card, like a some random card or something like that, like a Bob Gibson or something and kind of throw it back in my face. And yeah. So anyway, <laughs> Um, but wow, yeah, so
1: ninety one. That would have been after after Carl after Carlton was done playing, and they were still issuing cards of him by for Kellogg's. It's yeah, interesting.
0: Yeah, it was. You know, it was, it, and I end up looking up uh, some of those series later, and I guess all of those the card was funny about that whole series was that it was all older players. There was nobody current at the time, so it was um it huh. was well, it was Ralph Kiner, it was Lou Brock, Billy Williams, um, but it was nobody. That I remember, that was around that period of time. So ninety one, you're thinking you get a Roger Clemens card or George Brett, but it was all it was just like the, it was kind of the <laughs> greats. So that that surprised me. Even I was even thinking like at one point, my brother and I were trying to see if there was gonna be a Bo Jackson card available, and that didn't happen. So, oh yeah. But uh, no, it there's there's a lot of baseball going on, and, and one of the things that's going on. that are supposed to happen this week. Normally in the regular season was Lou Whitaker. The so, uh, day on Saturday was going, the Tigers were going to finally retire his number and put his jersey out there among the collection. And unfortunately with everything that's happened, it's been canceled. And, you know, during the veterans committee, he got overpassed. Uh, Chris and I had a healthy debate about Harold Baines. We kind of raised our eyebrows a little bit about that. Um, I get Game winning RBIs. <laughs> that was a, you know, I, I did want to get your opinion about that too, but, Lou Whitaker, Bill Freehand, and, and unfortunately, you know, we've heard recently that Bill Freehand's kind of in in poor health right now, and those are two Tigers that are mentioned in your book, and you do a really good job of describe why Lou Whitaker should be in the Hall of Fame. But I think ultimately, in terms of in terms of productivity, what have you, as a second baseman, but outside of those two, we can talk about the, who else right now you think should have a good chance at the Veterans Committee coming up. Uh, I believe they're, re- I'm not sure when they're going to renew that. I think it's next year, right when they d- d- do that vote again, correct?
1: Yeah, they, yeah, well, they, they, they canceled this or they postponed this year's vote, which was to be on the, on uh, both the early baseball ballot, uh, which is uh, players whose biggest or people whose biggest impact happened uh, 1950 or before, or b- before 1950, and the golden days ballot. Uh, which is players, uh, et cetera, whose uh, biggest impact occurred from 1950 to 1969, they'll consider those guys next year. Uh, and then the year after that, I believe, uh, they'll go back to the today's game, which is the post-1988 guys. Um, and so the next time uh, Whitaker would uh, have a chance to be considered would be Let's see, we're talking, this would be 2021, 2022, I think 2023, for the 2023 induction. Um, you know, I thought it was great that he actually got on the, the, the modern baseball ballot this past winter, because um, as you guys know, but the listeners may not know the, the exact contours of it, when Whitaker first became eligible in 2001, uh, he received just 2.9% of the vote. And uh, by BBWA rules, that disqualified him. Uh, from being considered by the uh, by the writers again uh, not just for that year for the next year but for the entirety of his 15 year run uh, and he could not appear on the uh, any of the uh, era committee ballots uh, in that span either. Um, during that time the era committee ballots underwent uh, several metamorphoses and uh, um, you know really in general it was a, a rule of thumb that a, that a guy who got uh, what we call five percentage, uh, got less than five percent of the vote and fell off the ballot. Uh, almost never even got reconsidered by uh, by the voters, and so he was kind of stuck in the, in this limbo. Um, uh, Ted Simmons, uh, who was in a similar boat, um, after falling off, of, uh, I want to say the '94 ballot. Uh, I could have the date the the, the date wrong there, but. Uh, uh, actually got in last uh, on the same ballot that Whitaker first appeared on, got in, was the first player ever to be 5 percent uh in his, in his only try uh, on the ballot and then gain entry via a committee. So that set a precedent that I think is very important to remember with Whitaker. And uh, Simmons was on, I think, four different era committee ballots. Uh, the fourth time was the charm. He missed by one vote the third time. So, um, you know, you have to take the long view of these things. Yes, Lou Whitaker should be in the Hall of Fame. I fervently believe that. Uh, but I also understand it's going to take some time uh, and I'm gratified to see that, uh, um, you know, the precedent has been set uh, that this door is open for for, for players like this who, who got jobs by the voters, uh, that they can
2: come back from that. Yeah, that's a, that's a nice. Uh, it, it's nice, like you said, that he's being considered. It, it's just I feel kind of bummed for him. Just it just seems like terrible timing. Like he he what well, he would hit the Hall of Fame ballot in 2000 or 2001, so it was probably yeah 2001 right before the sort of statistical revolution where people started you know knowing about WAR even and so yeah before then Whitaker didn't really have I mean, he was had a really great solid long career, but he didn't have the the stuff that people typically looked at for Hall of Fame votes you know MVPs you know, just he didn't win a lot of awards or lead a lot of categories, so he was overlooked and then. But now I feel like if he were on the ballot now, he'd probably get in pretty quickly because of his 75 career war. But he was then being judged by people who still have the old school mentality. So it was like, oh, that's a tough break.
0: Well,
1: it's, you know, I James had this observation, uh, you know, when he was doing his abstracts, you know, 30 some odd years ago, 40 years ago, um, that players who do many things well are often uh, underrated compared to those who do one or two things very well. Um, uh, Whitaker was a guy who had, I think we can call it mid range power. It took him a while to even get the double digits in home runs, but, uh, and he maxed out at, at 28, but had a lot of, uh, uh, home run totals in the teens and only a few in the twenties, so but he still ended up 244 home runs is a lot for a second baseman. Uh, he was also drawing, you know, 60, 70, 80 walks a year, uh, and, uh, uh put up good, uh, on, good on base percentages. And, uh, uh, now that we understand, uh, the impact of his fielding, he was, uh, uh adding several runs on that side of the ball, uh, as, as well. And when you, when you take all that into consideration, you've got a guy who, who really is, you know, consistently, uh, playing at a, at a, at an all-star level or just below an all-star level for a very long stretch of time. Um, I don't think his case is quite as strong as Alan Trammell's. Trammell had that big 1987 MVP uh, caliber season, um, but both of them were obviously on the the 84 championship team. Um, they both uh, fared similarly well by my JAWS system. Uh, Trammell, who lasted uh, the whole 15 years on the ballot, but didn't break 40% of the vote until uh, his final year, uh, actually got in on uh, uh, the first time he was eligible on that modern baseball ballot, and that was a big deal. Uh, and I do know that... Uh, uh, my work in in in, in highlighting him uh, did have an impact, uh, I think, on on some of the voters there. Um, you know, so I think uh, uh, there's there's hope that uh, that Whitaker joins Trammell someday uh, in the not too distant future. There, you know, once you've got one of them in there, I mean, they were they were inseparable. Uh, and getting back to those early baseball memories, when my, my mom brought home two packs of Tops 1978, uh, the Trammell and Whitaker. Uh, rookie cards. There were those four up uh, rookie cards in that seventy eight set. I had both of those, um, oh, and wow. I still have both of those back in uh, my my childhood uh, uh, home and, and and card binder. And so I was following those guys uh, really from the outset of their careers.
2: And, and yeah, I forgot about those those dual rookie cards. I remember I don't know was it Ricky Henderson or somebody was on one with like two people were really good on one rookie card. I don't remember exactly who it was, but
1: yeah, especially you know uh, um, there's well, Trump. T- Trammell and Mollinger are on the same card. Oh, that's uh, the one. On that. yeah, there
2: you
1: go. Yeah, and that, I was just like, holy, holy Toledo. That's a go. That you know, just a monster. Card. I think it might be the only time uh, there were uh, a rookie card with uh, two future Hall of Famers on it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's it's funny because a lot of the cards that we get, I get guys like Gary Wayne, and Gary Wayne was a like a he was a good at University of Michigan, and he ended up going to the the high school in my neighborhood. And Dearborn Heights, but I would get five or six Gary Waynes, and then every once in a while I would get a good card, <laughs> and then it was the same thing. Like my brother would try to like his car. His card collection looked a lot better than mine. imagine mentioned Ted Simmons, who's a Hall of Fame, also a Michigan product. He was actually uh, Chris. I, I think we yeah we talked about it before. He went to Wayne was State, Cass
2: Tech or Wayne State. Wayne, Wayne State, State,
0: yeah, no. Wayne State. He went to he went to Southfield. So, and what's what's fat, what's great about Whitaker, too? It's something that we're seeing the opposite right now with Mickey. Kind of declining in his age, but at the age of thirty, you look at thirty four, thirty five years old, thirty six years old. In those three years, he had a six point eight WAR, four point seven, four point one. Even at the age of thirty seven, two point five WAR. And then when he retired, the one thing I remember that was was strange about the whole entire time. It was during the Randy. It was the first year of the Randy Smith era, and apparently he had a chance to sign with the Braves. So I was doing some research on him originally, and then he stayed with Detroit after that. But then even the way he kind of – I don't want to say dismissed. The way the team handled the situation too, I just – I don't know. It, it it fell for what he was – how long he stood around in Detroit. You thought it would be a lot of more of a – you see now these days, you know, the tours with Mario Rivera going around mm-hmm. with the, the grand chair chair and what have you. But you never saw that with Trammell and Whitaker because both – it was just seemed like the Tigers at the time – were in this state of new ownership and money was tight cuz we're trying to get the new stadium I don't know, and I felt that that was kind of just I don't know the way they went down I I, don't, I never it never sat well with me.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it, it I definitely unfortunate. I'm you know remembering some of the stuff that I that that I wrote in the book it just I, and uh um you know the the Tigers really weren't sure how how to honor them and and I think you know there was some ambiguity as to whether they were coming back, and you know Whitaker, I think, is you know was was never really the most outgoing guy, and and really just wasn't wasn't you know wasn't really uh, um, calling attention to himself. But I think that was part of that was part of it too. Um, but it would have been nice if uh, uh, if they had been uh, recognized more greatly. I think that you know teams. I think really these hall of fame bids, they start with the teams. Um, you look at, you know, it was belated, but you look at the, the effort that the Mariners made to get Edgar Martinez into the hall. Yeah. Um, you know, if you, you want to increase the guy's visibility, you, you hire him as a coach, you, you, you hold special days for him. You you retire his number you do the things for him that you treat him like the, like the franchise legend first. Um you know, and that calls attention to their to them. I think in a in a, in a way, and makes it known that hey, we thought this guy was special. Um, and the Tigers, yeah, they kind of half-assed it when it came to Whitaker and and and, and, and Trammell. I think, and uh, um, you know, it's just uh, a long time coming in terms of uh, uh, bestowing the 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 love and the recognition that he deserved.
0: And you mentioned this in your book too about Bill Freehand, and you mentioned that Joe Falls who one of the first beat writers I remember, and he had that – I think I I forgot – I think he was from New York. He had this – the accent he spoke – he was only on – he had, like, a sports reporter that he would come on locally, and then there's something on the radio. But, you know, you don't come out and speak about Bill Freehand, who – and you point out here that they did kind of – I mean, for how many games this guy played, good Lord, man, just – yeah, you're right, down to the nub is how I describe it. And right now, I mean, he did some good – he did some he built up the Michigan program. Correct me if I'm wrong, because he was he was on the World Series or the the college World Series team that was in eighty five with Bill Rip or um uh not Billy Ripken – Uh Bill L- or Barry Larkin. That was definitely yeah, yeah, yeah. He was a he was a coach for those teams in the eighties. So he's done stuff that but yeah, you're right. It didn't help him with his eighty two with the how stacked that was. But I about Bill Freehand a little bit? I mean, in terms of American League, he was the counterpart to Johnny Bench, wasn't he?
1: Yeah, he had a run there of, uh, I think it's 11 all-star appearances in 12 years, uh, starting catcher seven straight years. Um, you know, just the dominant player in the league at that position and, um, you know, was part of uh, 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 the, uh, the 1968 championship team, uh, the 1972 division winning team, um, you know, had, again, you know, 20, 20 homer power uh good amount of walks, good on base percentage. Uh his his numbers were suppressed by the um uh by by the times. But you know, his you look at what he did in nineteen sixty seven and sixty eight, he had a, a one forty five OPS plus. Um that's like a Piazza like impact uh when you mm-hmm. uh you know when you me- when you measure it relative to to what the league levels were. Uh, he was putting up some some serious numbers there and he was a big reason why the tigers were winners and he was a, and he was an excellent defender he won gold gloves and the metrics uh, uh i think at least support the fact that he was an above average build or maybe not the most deserving guy every year he won the, he won the awards but um you know uh just a you know, a good defensive catcher to go with to go with good offense and um, yet when he hit the ballot in 1982, he got 0.5% of the vote, which is just jaw-dropping. I mean, that's like I don't know, maybe two guys, two guys put him on their ballots. Um, so, you know, something just embarrassing. Yeah, two out of 415, and that's just embarrassing. I mean, that's a lot of people that got it wrong. Um, I have him by my system. I have him 15th, the 15th best catcher of all time, and that's measuring the players. Career and peak wins above replacement, and that, he's not quite at the uh, the level of uh, a must-have. He's actually a little short there, but um, I think you can make a, a decent case given just the recognition that he had, and the fact that he, he was, like you said, the, the dominant guy in the league at the position. Uh, you know, for for over a decade. Um, I think uh, now that Simmons is in, I think I would put Thurman Munson in ahead of Bill Freehan, but that's, you know, and then and, and Joe Mauer. Um, who's not yet eligible, but that's it. Um, Green is probably the third best catcher outside the hall uh, of of those who, uh, you know, are no longer playing. And that's a, and that's a position that only has 16 Hall of Famers, whereas uh, we've got as many as 25 at the other uh,
2: defensive positions. Yeah. You know, that's, I, he was before my time, of course. So it's, it's one of those things where I don't, I don't really remember anything about him, but yeah, looking back and seeing those stats, it's kind of like, yeah, that, that dude deserves some sort of recognition. Yeah he,
1: yeah, he was before he was before my time too. But I read my sheriff's yeah. stuff about the you know the, the those Tigers teams in the you know the, the sixty seven sixty eight uh, uh, races and and uh, obviously you know have the numbers to the to paint a, a very strong picture of just how good he was and 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 how underrated he was.
2: I think uh, uh, relative to you know what he provided. Yeah, So uh, while we have it here, I have had a couple like uh, sort of just random war musings that I've thought about before I, and uh, in, involving the Hall of Fame. And this is I think uh, it won't matter because I I hope at least that Hall of Fame voters won't ever get to the point where they're just looking at a guy's war and putting him in. I, I would wouldn't think maybe a couple, but uh, I, I've been thinking, given the way that Albert Pujols has been playing lately and, and Miguel Cabrera here, uh, just thinking about guys who might might have the hall of fame more and then lose it by playing a couple more years. Like if there are instances of guys who should have just retired like five years before.
1: I mean, there are definitely guys who should have retired, you know, before they, before they did. But I mean, Albert Pujols has just ridiculous milestones in the first, you know, the first, uh, uh, 11 seasons of his career are just, you know, as good a first 11 seasons as anybody has ever put together. Um, you know, the, the three MVPs, the championships, the all-star appearances, uh, just, just total, total dominance in a, in a, you know, in a high offensive era, even then. Yeah. And, and, and excellent uh, uh, defensive work too. I mean, I think he's uh, uh, number one or number two at the position defensively as well. This is a, uh, you know, an outstanding all around player um, and Miguel Cabrera. Yeah. It's just, it's it's tough watching, you know, what, what he's become, but he got such an early start and he's got these, uh, uh, you know, I think uh, uh, unless he completely walks away, it's inevitable. He gets to 3,000 hits, too, uh, and, and probably 500 home runs. Um, it's going to be kind of grueling to watch, uh, just as it was for uh, watching uh, Craig Biggio get to 3,000 hits. Or, or, you know, if I look back, the numbers, Lou Brock uh, was below replacement level by the time he got to 3,000 hits. Um, but, those, you know, those milestones, um, they, and, you know, and, and when you've got, like, whatever 12 or 15 or however many all-star appearances and multiple MVP awards hanging on for a while yeah. is, is, uh, you know, that it, it, it dims, it dims the luster a little bit. Uh, um, uh, but at the same time, I, I, it doesn't really have a, a huge impact on, on, on how voters, uh, uh, handle these guys. They know that this, you know, these guys were the, you know, the greats for, for, you know, over a decade and, and, uh, they earned those huge deals that, uh, uh, they, that allowed them to stick around well past their, their their usefulness
2: yeah you know i was thinking more just like a hypothetical scenario like not those guys i mean they have obviously all the other stuff but i'm thinking like uh, just a scenario where some guy's close and that he holds on for a little too long and loses like three war in his last two seasons and i don't know yeah it's, I, it's know, silly I, thought I,
1: it's still it's still it's still not you know it's still a minority of voters that's 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 using yeah. war as its guide i mean i i'm i'm pleased that i have helped uh you know push push voters towards uh, uh, doing that with, with you know with, with my system. I mean that was really kind of what I set out to do was was uh, uh, to help guide uh, voters by using advanced statistics and showing that uh, um, you know the, the various eras in, in, in baseball on history were not all created equal, but if you if, if you get away from uh, the, the counting stats that, that put players you know, in certain environments and advantages or disadvantages that you could see uh, where real value lies, um you know it's it's i think they're not they're not there's just not that many who, who really look at look at uh, uh war first uh Vada is somebody we've been talking about lately uh um in, in a couple contexts uh, um, and he's kind of having that uh, uh that that rush uh, Mid 30s patch where you wonder if he's ever going to be a productive player again. And he's also on one of those like ungodly contracts that just, yeah. you know, he's like, you can't believe there's still three seasons left. And you're like, oh, this is going to be tough to watch. But, you know, Botto a guy yeah. who walks so much that he's not going to get anywhere near uh, 3,000 hits. He's going to be uh, uh, closer to 2,000 hits and, and 300 home, run- home runs rather than uh, uh, the more magical Hall of Fame numbers. But uh, his, his, uh, he's already passed the, the peak score, uh, among first basemen. Uh, the best seven years. In fact, he's, he's got the best, uh, uh, seven year peak of any first baseman outside the hall, um, with the, with the exception of Pujols. Uh, and so, you know, I, I do think he'll be there in time, but I think he's actually gone backwards a hair this year because he's been below replacement level. Yeah. Minus, the- minus 0.8 by baseball reference. And so yeah, he's, uh, he's slid a few
2: points. A few, a few fractions of a point, I should say. So the, the other uh, silly idea I had, and uh, we actually, I mentioned this to, uh, we had Dan Dan Samborsky, your colleague there at Fangrass, We had him on, I don't know, two months ago. Sure. Uh, and and I threw this idea at him too. And this this kind of stems from uh, a couple years ago. I wrote an article about Gary Sheffield, and I actually did it without reading your your you know your uh, blurb on him, so I could be sort of objective of my own thought. And I was like, man, you know, this is really one of the best offensive players ever, but his defense was so brutal. And there are obviously other reasons that, that are keeping him out of the Hall of Fame, but it, it got me on this idea about like when when we almost punish players for playing out of position, like it, and it, it led me to Adam Eaton. I think 2015 and 2016 had almost identical seasons, but one year he played center field and was a below average center field. and the next year he played right field and was uh, one of the best. And he ended up it was like a difference of like three WAR, and it just made right. me wonder like oh man like you know this is kind of the basis of of Sabermetrics almost is giving people credit for stuff that they or, or not taking credit away for things they can't control. It's like, oh how do we deal with that with a player's value if, if he's gonna be a great right. right fielder but they're playing him at shortstop or something? It's it's yeah, I don't know, where where do we go with the theoretical yeah. stuff?
1: It's, it's, it's tough. And I think, you know, when you look at like a player like Sheffield, I mean, I think you have to regard outliers as, as you know, with some amount of suspicion. I mean, was, was Gary Sheffield really that bad a fielder? I, I don't know. I, I didn't see enough of his his, uh, infield play. Uh, I think, you know, my experience of watching him play the infield was, uh, was with the Marlins uh, during their, um, uh, you know, I guess at least uh, briefly, yeah, is- but uh, um, even yeah, even even by even by the time he was on the championship team, he was he was in the outfield. But um, uh, you know, he was he was so mistreated in Milwaukee and in, in, in along every different dimension. I mean, they brought him to Major at nineteen, uh, sent him down to the minors when, when he had a broken, um, you know, made him uh pee in a cup because Dwight Dwight Gooden was his uncle and was going through drug problems and and just. All kinds of, uh, frankly, fairly racist treatment, um, you know, just based on 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 uh, uh, you know the fact that he was an angry young black man who they made angrier. Um, and uh, uh, you know, it's tough to hold that against him, and 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 it's amazing that he still came out and the talent still shone through, and he still became you know one of the best hitters of his era. And uh, uh, those offensive
2: numbers you know, do jump off the page.
0: Yeah, and yeah. The, 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 was it
2: Roger? Or, oh, go ahead. Go ahead
0: oh, go ahead, Chris. Oh, how was
2: you say, uh, Was it the Marvin Freeman video that you just tweeted or you sent me the other day? Was yeah, that? Yeah. against Sheffield. Yeah, that was against Sheffield.
0: Yeah, yeah Sheffield. Uh, Marvin Freeman did a uh, really good breakdown of a bat against uh, pitching against Gary Sheffield, but it was just it was funny. It was just <laughs> it was the funny it was just how casual he was going about it, and uh, it was it was a pretty good breakdown. <laughs> um,
2: yeah, I mean, one of the most feared hitters of his time. It's just it's it's weird to me that. I don't. Know. I mean, there are other things, and and Jay's uh, rundown did a great job. I Remember, you kind of debunking the whole idea of him supposedly making errors on purpose. I mean, what a bunch of BS. But anyway,
0: I, I didn't know about the random drunk testing and walking. That's that's um, mind-boggling. You, were, you and you were talking about, uh, in terms of a players that dealt with kind of racism. And one one player that comes to mind, and it was somebody that, for a lot of Cuban Americans, like such myself and and my and my father who grew up in Cuba. And he ha- we had a couple people play in the Cuban League was Minnie Minosa, and really in terms of what he was able to establish in Chicago and be one of the first dark skin players to play for Chicago, I believe he was, and just you know of course the the mystery behind his age, behind his death, and what have you, um, how old he really was, but as a, as I'm a, not even a, as a baseball fan, I love this game. Um, I thought that. He should be considered. I mean, I know he unfortunately was was 2015. You mentioned about being part of the Golden Era committee, being passed over. But his his story alone, and what he in, in inspired other athletes like Luis Tai, Mike Qualar, um, a little more darker skinned Cubans. And there's such a di- dichotomy between that, which I can go into another st- another time another day. But I think that at some point, I hope that he gets his due and gets in the Hall of Fame.
1: Yeah, look, um, I have many at the top or the very top of my list uh, in terms of uh, most deserving players outside the hall who are not on the writer's ballot. Um, I think if you look at his significance, you know, when I went to the hall uh, to do research on my book uh, in um, uh, early 2016, I was uh, yeah, I was basically uh, on the home stretch to deliver the manuscript Um later that summer. And I had, I spent four days up there in the dead of winter, uh, froze my ass off. Um, <laughs> there was a photo exhibit, uh, on the top floor and kind of this rotating exhibit space. Uh, and, uh, it's a giant quote, uh, from, I believe it's Orlando Cepeda who said that, you know, many was our Jackie Robinson. Um, you know, the first, uh, Afro Latino player in the major leagues and, uh, really understood the power of that and that that he was, you know, just such a trailblazer. And then you go back and you look at his career uh, and, you know, he 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 starred for a couple of years in the Negro Leagues at, at, at a young age. Of course, we don't know exactly what his age was, um, but he was, you know, he was uh, kept out of, uh, you know, he was talented enough to play in the probably play in the major leagues, but he was kept out by the color line. Uh, the Indians signed him. Uh, but played him only nine games in 1949 because they already had uh, a few black players on the, on the club, including uh, Larry Doby and Satchel Paige. And then I think uh, Luke Easter. Um, And uh, they kind of felt bound by an informal quota system. Uh, So they shipped him out to the Pacific coast league where he just put up insane numbers uh, uh, for a couple of years. And then uh, they traded him to uh, the White Sox in early 1951. And he, you know, by our best estimates, he was probably 25 years old then, and, you know, had really only gotten the taste of, uh, uh the majors that he probably should have had, uh, at least three more seasons, maybe four, something like that. Um, and then for that 11 year period from 1951 to 1961, he was the best player in the American league, the side of Mickey Mantle. Um, not biggest slugger, but huge on base, great speed, uh, uh, triples, uh, uh, all, all kinds of stuff there and, and, uh, good defense as well. And, and it all comes out to be uh, a player who, you know, if we can extrapolate and understand, you know, that, that there were times, you know, that, that his career length was beyond his control. And we see a guy who, who I think, uh, uh, clearly had hall of fame talent, just didn't have, uh, the luck to be in the right place at the right time. And, and I think it's, you know, imperative that, uh, uh, that that gets recognized by the Hall of Fame because those obstacles were placed in his way, uh, you know, and they were they were most unfair. And uh, uh, a lot of the, players, uh, of, caliber, of the other players of his caliber, mostly of the other players of his caliber for whom that's been the case are in the Hall of Fame and he's not. And so that I think is a, a grave injustice and I hope uh, uh, hope it gets rectified. It breaks my heart that uh, it wasn't uh, the last time around that he died a couple months after that, uh, uh, that uh, vote for the 2015 ballot.
0: Yeah, and and he's made such an impact in Chicago. I remember having the – he had a sandwich down there at the ballpark, and then just the influx of Latin players. You see it now with the White Sox making history, having their four Cuban players, one through four, make, the first time in Major League Baseball history that's happened. And I know that it, pitching – it's been more of a – throughout history, more pitchers than hitters, but the now you kind of see it now reversing a little bit. Uh, yeah, Mimosa, he <laughs> – just I thought, and just in terms of you're making a case for it was outstanding, and but just that story alone, just the the sugarcane stuff, just talking to my dad about the same thing was just some of the parallels to what Cubans had to go through in terms of from a standpoint of working their way up. It's just, it's impressive, and um, yeah, I just I don't know. I it's just the numbers alone. I don't know Chris, if you had a chance to look at his numbers throughout that period of time, it's just. It's insane, man. Um, 1954 season, 8.2 war. But and just in terms of, like, that, his numbers overall, it was – it's, it's – yeah. I mean, 100, it hit 19 home runs, 116 RBIs, and what is it? He had an OPS plus of 154. It's insane. So Yeah,
2: that's – yeah, I was looking at those while you guys were talking about it. Yeah, it's uh, – yeah, that's one of those things. There's, there's so many players that kind of just get lost to history, and it's nice uh, that, that there are people out there fighting for them to uh, – people like Jay, I fight for them to, you know, get remembered. It's, it's, I get so wrapped up in what's going on today and like, uh, Hey, Casey Mize is on the mound that uh, <laughs> I, I don't really think much about the past.
0: Yeah. And and speaking of it, you were, you, you were just talking about the, the future with the Tigers right now. Uh, you wrote a piece on fan graphs about what the, the the potential with these three parades Paredes, Scoobo and Mize. And We've got a chance, a lot of comparisons, Brady's to Carlos Guillen, the former Tiger, in terms of hitting prowess. But then today you got news that Matt Manning and Alex Fado are out with forearm issues. So that also could be foreshadowing for Tommy John. But the in terms of just draft strategy, in terms of what teams have to do, pitching is never – you can never draft enough pitching.
1: Yeah, you, you, you can't count those chickens. I mean, you know, you've got uh... – you know, four excellent pitching prospects there. Uh, and I know uh, at least at FanGraphs, and I think in other places too that that uh, uh, most uh, prospect experts, of which I am decidedly not one, um, I, like I deal ideal at the uh, the other end of the spectrum. But I have to uh, understand that, uh, you know the, the, that stuff for for my day to day. Have Manning ahead of mines, but you got four of those guys, man. You're gonna be lucky if two of, if two of them you know, survive to pitch to have long careers because arm injuries get in the way of stuff. A guy might have to move to a bullpen, to the bullpen because uh, his stuff just doesn't play out like you thought. Uh, There's just all kinds of things that get in the way of this stuff. Um, And so, yeah, you, you can't have too much pitching. I mean, you're, you know, there are rare times in history where we see, um, you know, a team to even come up with three uh, excellent young pitchers at a time. Um, you know, the Braves of the early nineties, the Royals of the mid eighties. Um, a lot of times, you know, you can produce a championship team with that kind of stuff. And I think obviously that's, that's the hope for the tigers, but, uh, it's going to be a long road to get there. And, uh, um, you know, Mize has been knocked around a little bit in his two, uh, outings. And, uh, um, I think, uh, uh, uh as well. And it's, there's going to be some growing pains. but I, I, I respect the fact that the tigers brought them up to take a look and, and, uh, uh, I was impressed uh, watching Mize's debut at that splitter. Uh, that The way that thing mm-hmm. was diving, um, you know, hitters were, that was a tough pitch for hitters. And, and, uh, uh, I'm, I actually found it very interesting that I, I was watching the Tigers broadcast and Jack Morris was on there and I had my issues with Jack Morris. <laughs> uh, uh, his candidacy for the hall of fame was one I, one I, I fought against, but I grew up watching Jack Morris. I saw his no hitter. I saw his, uh, uh, you know the the ten the shut out. and I respect. Uh, I any, on a good day on the mound, Jack Morris was as good as anybody. Um, but uh, the uh, hearing Morris talk about uh, um, Mize's splitter and and his own forkball, which was you know similarly thrown just from a more top down angle, and explain that that to me, uh, I thought that was that was that was fascinating, and and uh, um, I, I learned something from that, and so that
2: was that was neat.
0: Yeah, and, and yeah,
2: there, there, there are times when uh, Jack seems to be announcing to the score too. Yeah, uh, but <laughs> it, it, it doesn't sound like, yeah, I was just gonna there. say, it doesn't
0: sound like the angry uh, well, back in my day, like the goose gossage kind of nonsense. Sometimes when I hear goose gossage talking, I'm like, man, come on, man. You, yeah. you it, and,
2: yeah, and, and no, I mean, he drunkers. does have this unique sort of insight that that you can't get from uh, people who aren't you know that level of pitcher, but uh. Yeah, one of the, the the funny things we've noticed this year is how often he misidentifies pitches. And I don't know if he's just not looking, like if their monitor doesn't have the speed and stuff, so it's easier for us. Right. But it's weird for him to say like, "Oh, it's a breaking ball." It was like a 95 mile an hour fastball. You're like, "Dude, you were a pitcher? What?" But uh, I don't know.
0: Yeah. You're you're mentioning uh, one of the, uh, I always think about the Mets in the mid 90s with Bill Pulsifer – and that trio of pitchers with Jason Anheuser. Mm-hmm. And I can always forget the third one. Um, Paul Wilson. Paul Wilson. And yeah. the Met, it's 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 fascinating to me throughout three times in history, the Mets have had this happen too. You look at the most recent example with DeGrom, Harvey, and uh, Syndergaard. And then you look at these 90s Mets. And I even in, dare I even say the, even the 80s Mets, where you have all these expectations for this young rotation led by Doc Gooden, and they had a couple pitchers who were highly regarded. With you know, Ron Darling was a really good pitcher in his time, too, but the reason why I was mentioning this is talk about you can never have enough pitching. I thought the Mets, with that kind of staff it had in the 80s, by, led by Dwight Gooden and the likes of you know, Ron Garling, you had Sid Fernandez. who Sid Fernandez, Yeah, yeah. wasn't bad. Rick O'Leary, who before he went to the bullpen, I thought that was a team, too, that was set up for long-term success and just one World Series came out of it.
1: <laughs> yeah, and you know it's um it's it, uh, uh it's just tough to keep that many guys healthy for that long. It's inevitable that you know, they that, that they'll decline, that they'll get hurt, uh you know that uh, you won't be able to afford all of them. Um, it's just all these things uh uh eventually work against you. And, and you know to, to bring the discussion back to the, the Alan Trammell and Lou Whitaker for a moment. I mean I know that one of the knocks on um on them from a a Hall of Fame voter standpoint was that, oh, they only won one championship, you know, only got to the playoffs two times. Well, it's like, ah, you know, only one championship, you know, how many guys in baseball history would like kill to have only one championship? Um, you know, I think, but I think there was a sense that that the, that with the talent on that team, you know, that included Morris that included, uh, um, uh, Lance, uh, Lance Parrish behind the plate, and Kurt Gibson in, 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 uh, in center field. That uh, uh, that they should have won more uh, than they did. And uh, but it's it's tough to keep everything together. And and you know those plans just don't you know, for Dynasties just don't 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 pan out the way you think they will.
2: Yeah, you don't have to tell Tigers fans that. We uh, <laughs> in the early early part of the last decade, we saw you know the 2013 Tigers team had one of the best pitching rotations I've ever seen. And then you just go and lose Boston. <laughs> it's like oh, or they go yeah. to the World Series in 2012 and just forget how to hit. It's uh, but I Roger, that was a good point. The the modern Mets trio, like that's almost like one of the better case scenarios when you have a bunch of pitching prospects. You get Degrom is about as good as you could possibly get. Syndergaard uh, has been good, not quite as uh as, as good as everyone kind of thought, and he's hurt now. And then Harvey was really good and then got hurt. It's but but. Most of the times you don't even get guys who flash greatness that much. I, I think of like the Braves right now. They had like a dozen pretty elite pitching prospects. And I don't know, two of them have worked out.
0: Yeah. I mean, it was, it was interesting too. The, you, the, the Braves, too. The Braves just had a ton of pitching. But getting back to what um, Jay was saying about the Trammel Whitaker connection too, Sparky couldn't make up his mind about who he wanted at third base. I mean, it was either Tommy Brookins. Oh,
1: yeah. That. You know, and and, and Jay,
0: and, and, and Jay the, Chris, you we've we've talked about this too. The biggest thing that, and I I find this out later as I, I've gotten older and do more research, is that Sparky had a lot more to say in player personnel than I thought, because I never under I mean mm-hmm. I understood the Walt Terrell, the Howard Johnson to for Walt Terrell trade, and I think it was eighty yeah the end of eighty four in eighty five. Well, I mean it makes sense because they needed another another starter to fill the rotation. And then Howard Johnson figures things out, and then there's all like just there's some i guess uh controversy behind how he got his quote unquote power but all that being aside, it was just you had Tommy Brookins at third at one point at Daryl Coles who then they just lose patience on him and he and then they had it was until Travis Fryman in nineteen ninety one that they finally had a third baseman solution uh, figured out even Daryl, I mean Daryl Evans. As good as he was, he was playing third base at forty one in nineteen eighty seven because they literally had nobody else that could play at stretches of the season. And I think that it is hard to maintain that when, in addition to contracts, you had the collusion in eighty six eighty seven. I think for the Tigers, the, the 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 team, I think expectations. If you look at the Tigers on paper, you still had the Orioles who were still had a farm system that was producing a lot of talent, and I think even with the Yankees stepping back a little bit, but they were, they were so being micromanaged. I mean, Doug Drayback, you think of all these former Yankees who end up going to be stars elsewhere as well. That plays a factor into what could have been, uh, I mean, what it could have should have. but anyway, I, that was just my point about that. Cause I, I just thought about all the interchangeables between first, or excuse me, third, third base for the Tigers at that point.
1: Well, you know, there was also that, that there was a, there was a spring that they, they contemplated moving, uh, uh, Whitaker to third base. He, he played third base in the minors. I think oh, it was yeah. late in 1976. And, uh, Chris Pataro, it was, was, uh, <laughs> spring of 1985. They, uh, Sparky wanted Chris Pataro, uh, at th- a switch hitting 23 year old, uh, uh, at third base. And so, uh, uh, at, uh, at second base, I think. And they wanted, uh, uh, so Whitaker agreed to move to third base and, uh, um, uh, but then, uh, changed his mind a week later. And, uh, Pataro started there and got off to a hot start, but then, uh, by June, he was in the minors, and then that was all, you know, never heard from again type of thing. Um, but, uh, yeah, part of the litany of, uh, of, of finding a third baseman for them.
0: Yeah, there's even – I remember that too, because they were saying that Chris Petal was going to be the next big star, and, and spark spoke a lot about that stuff, and that was kind of his M.O. In terms of uh, players right now, Jay, if you look at the modern – baseball landscape and, and with numbers being involved constantly, what are players, What are some players that stand out to you? Some you really sit down and enjoy, and, and just every time they go out there, you 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 take a minute to kind of go, oh, man, this is this guy is a special talent.
1: Well, I mean, I love watching Mike Trout. I know that uh, a lot of people find him a little bit boring, uh, but uh, I, I generally, you know, I mean, this is a guy who's already – uh, fifth on the center field list in in Jaws and and is uh, you know three time MVP and is just doing things that I think you know we're 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 lucky to see. Um, Clayton Kershaw, you know I love watching Clayton Kershaw pitch. Um, get I try to tune in for just about every one of his starts. Um, Max Scherzer is always a lot of fun when he's on. Uh, Degrom too. Um, I'm really enjoying uh, Fernando Satis Jr. Holy Toledo! He's uh, he has a lot of fun, so much swagger and and so much talent. Um, uh, Aaron Judge, when he's healthy, is 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 a, is a gas. Uh, unfortunately, he's just not healthy very often right now. Uh, got to play one game before going back on the on the injured list here uh, uh, yesterday. Um, you know, we just got uh, Francisco Lindor is another one. I I, re- I really enjoy um on both sides of the ball and just that uh, just a really uh just a really fun player um those are the guys that I think stand out to me most Mookie Betts uh too and I'm really getting to appreciate him here because uh, the Dodgers are, are still kind of my default team in terms of who I am um so uh uh
2: getting to see him on a regular basis is, is going to be a lot of fun when do you start to to monitor guys who are like, hey, this guy, this this is a kid who might have a Hall of Fame case in the future? Is it uh, just depends on how how good they are, how quickly?
1: Yeah, it's, I mean, like I just wrote about Mookie Betts, Mookie Betts last week, and and he's already passed the seven year peak mark uh, for the average Hall of Fame right fielder. Um, that's generally about when I start talking about guys is when they get to that set, they they flesh out those. Uh, uh, those seven year peaks that we could see like, okay, yeah, he's a little short. He's going to need another like MVP type season or it just needs a couple all-star type seasons or whatever. Um, you start to have, uh, um, you know, the perspective on, Hey, this, this guy really is something special, but it's usually not until a guy's in his thirties you,
2: that, you, that, yeah.
1: that you can really dig out on most of them. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's rare when you're talking about a Mookie Betts or, or, a, or a uh, Mike Trout or, or a Jose Altuve. And Altuve is a little bit behind uh, those, way, way behind those guys. But if he, you know, he's uh, uh, laid down some some pretty big seasons. Um, but, uh, you know, you do you do keep track of, uh, or you do keep track of uh, uh, the progress guys are making. And I mean, it's, it's those, those seasons that are, you know, six, seven, eight war, uh, when they start laying down multiples of those uh, early in their career, that uh, you're like, okay, this guy is somebody to watch.
2: And I'm always kind of fascinated by the guys, this pretty rare, but guys who suddenly kind of turn it on at like 29, 30, like, I'm thinking like Adrian Beltre, who was a really good player, but then he hit 30 and just put up like, you know, five or six consecutive six, seven war seasons. It was like, Oh, suddenly he's like a, a no doubt hall of famer. It's just, it's weird when that yeah, happens. Well, like,
1: you know, he was, he was, he spent all this the first half of his career in pitcher parks and, in. uh, um uh, LA and Seattle. And then when he got to Boston, suddenly he's got a hitter's park and, uh, um, you know, and, and likewise in Arlington, and I think he was maybe more affected by that than, you know, than most, I think is just the way, the way, you know, the, the amount of fly balls he hit and, and, uh, the dimensions of those parks, uh, really suited him. And I think he also, you know, worked, uh, doggedly to, to, to be an, you know, an even better defender. I mean, it's, his defense always had uh, a lot of value um, and made him worth those, that, that contract in Seattle, even when it didn't seem like he was. Um, but uh, um, once he got to Texas and, and, and could uh, take advantage of the offense there, he really did emerge. Yes. As a, as a, as a strong candidate. And he was a lot of fun to watch. And uh, um, yeah. yeah, one of the great late career showings, I think, in terms of uh cementing a Hall of Fame case.
0: Great call there, Chris.
1: Well, you know, I try. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: but uh yeah, so that being said, we wanted to again thank you for your time and, and to talk a little bit about the, the past Tigers. It was good to talk Chris, uh Chris Pitaro. Pitaro was a name I haven't heard in a long time. Another you know, another guy that Sparky Anders made a bit a big deal out of was Billy Bean, not the the other mm-hmm. Billy Bean. Yeah, um, right. The, yeah, him and um, it was just – and also it's just because I think about those teams and, and underrated guys who may not get it a Hall of Fame like Arroyo Lopez comes to mind. Senior Smoke was one of my favorite Tigers growing up because he just – he went out there, just pitched whenever. went want to close? Cool. went three innings of relief? Cool. I could do that too. And uh, kind of now in the days of specialty relievers, you don't see that very often where the Tigers are kind of using an analytical approach to relieving, which is mind-blowing, uh, mind-blowing to us because it's – seen yeah anyways it's a little different for us but if you want to buy the book it's on amazon the cooperstown casebook who's in the hall of fame who should be in who should pack their plaques by jay jaffe and you can find all his writing of course on Fangraphs. great stuff jay thanks for your time again we really appreciate it and uh hopefully uh this weekend with we're discussing a little bit with jackie robinson and then a lou whitaker weekend that we see some really cool tributes out there this week
1: Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. Good talking to you guys. Thanks for having me on. Awesome.
2: Thanks, Jay.